Bibles to Exodus 20. We'll be at Exodus 20, verse 8. And I think I have this on now. Is that correct? All right. Before we read our passage for today, I just want to say um, there is something beautiful about coming before the, law, the Lord together in song and listening to the words of Scripture. The sermon that we have today is a little bit pointed at us, brothers, and so I'm a little bit fearful almost of it. But I was encouraged just through the preaching or the teaching and the, just the, the giving of the Word of God in Matthew 5, but also just in the songs that we sang to encourage us to be faithful to God's word in all things. And in that, there's delight. There's delight in worshiping him. That encouraged my soul just a second ago, and I hope that will encourage you as we go through this. So with that said, let's begin. Uh, This week and next, we'll be looking at the fourth commandment to finish up the sermon series on the Ten Commandments. It's been a real joy to be able to study the commandments in detail and in depth like this again. Every time that I go through a particular book or doctrine, I see something new or in a way that enlivens why we believe what we believe. So just thank you, Pastors Thomas and um, Pastor Tiago. I switched you, sorry, uh, for allowing me to preach. Uh, Thank you for that opportunity and for you, brothers and sisters, to even give an ear to me. It has been a blessing to serve in this capacity, and I thank you for it. We'll be looking at the fourth commandment, which is found in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, and that's our scripture reading for today. We'll read this, uh, this passage and pray that God's blessing would be upon us. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are creator and redeemer of this cosmos through Christ Jesus. And as those who are united to him by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit to Christ, Lord, we partake, we see, and we glory in the works of your majesty, the works of your creation, and the wonderful work of your redemption in Christ. And Lord, this day, the Lord's day, your Sabbath day, as a day in which we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity that we might come together, even in the midst of a pandemic, and that your glory would be made known, that the preaching of the word of God would go out, that we would be transformed in our hearts, bodies, and souls for your glory, and that your name, your work of creator and redeemer would go out from this place in the power of Christ's holy and perfect name. Please be with us all, and may you prepare our hearts um, 
for this message this day. We ask this in your son's holy name. Amen. Brothers, this commandment is slippery. What I mean by that is that of all the commandments that slip through the cracks of our conscience, I would argue that this commandment, that the church overlooks this commandment more than any other. The church, not the world, not unbelievers, but the church has profoundly misunderstood the exegetical, theological, and practical ramifications of this command. This week and next, we are going to be going headlong into the issues concerning this commandment. And there may be things that you hear that are new to you, possibly so. There may be things that sound somewhat strange. But what I ask is that as we affirm and understand the biblical and theological foundations of this command, that we would not stop short of actually following it. To be clear at the outset, the end goal for us in today's sermon is this. If you're taking notes, I'm trying my best to be as clear-cut as possible. I want us to affirm and practice the Christian Sabbath. I want us to believe that the Bible, our, our scriptures, God's revelation, that the fourth commandment is taught by the word of God and that it is still binding upon us and that we should actually live that out. I want us to affirm and practice the principle to abstain from all forms of needless work and employment for the purpose of worshiping God and restful praise on his prescribed day. That is our goal for this morning. So with our objective stated, I want us to approach this commandment in three ways. First, we will review what we saw and affirmed at the beginning of the Ten Commandments series. We will affirm that the moral law is still binding upon Christians as the rule for Christian obedience, even the fourth commandment. Second, we'll focus our time on the unique difficulties that come along with this fourth commandment, namely the issue of Sunday and Saturday practice. Third, we will look at what the commandment actually entailed for its Old Testament context. There are some misconceptions of the Sabbath keeping that are often assumed, but they are neither accurate nor fair. We should seek to be honest concerning this command. And to be honest, we must be informed what this command actually teaches us. Us. So with our first major point is this. The moral law is still binding upon us. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, we surveyed the entire Bible to paint the picture of what God requires of his people throughout all ages. I preached two sermons, both entitled, Why Then the Law? I hope that y'all can remember back to them. In those sermons, we affirmed three things. First, we affirmed that the Ten Commandments are the moral foundation for the entirety of the Old Testament laws. Out of all the laws given in the Old Testament, we noticed that the Ten Commandments were unique in how they were given to the people of Israel. They were, sp- they were spoken directly to Israel from Mount Sinai, not with Moses present. It was directly spoken to Israel. And they were also inscribed upon tablets of stone, the only ten that were. This is indicative, we saw, of their unique status among all the laws of the Old Testament. And as we continued our study, uh, I tried my best to show that Deuteronomy acted as like a Ten Commandment commentary. 
Deuteronomy arranged the laws found in Genesis through Numbers and expounded them in, uh, upon, and expounded upon them with the Ten Commandments in mind. I wanted to show that at the very heart of the Old Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the moral essence or the moral core of God's covenant could be summarized by these Ten Commandments. Love God, love neighbor. That was the core of the Old Testament, the moral core. Second, we also affirm that prior to the Old Covenant established at Sinai, both Israel and pagans were aware of their moral duty before God. We looked at the episode of Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. We're not going to turn there. Though the law had not yet been given, both Abraham and Abimelech were concept of, the, uh, of sin. They were aware of the concept of sin. And we use that perfect little children's catechism. What is sin? Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that breaks God's law. Abraham and Abimelech. Abimelech, a pagan knew God's law because he knew he was sinning against God. Sin is lawless or breaking God's law. How did the ancients know the law when the law had not yet been given? With some help from Paul in Romans 2 verses 14 through 15, we saw that all humanity, all the way back to Adam and Eve, had the concept of morality by nature. As image bearers of God, we have God's law inscribed in our hearts, even though it is marred and suppressed by sin. So the essence or or core of God's moral law is not only found at Sinai or in the Old Covenant. The moral law has been with us as image bearers ever since Adam, since the beginning of the creation of Adam. And it still is going to continue to be with us till the end. This is why pagans who know nothing of God are still accountable before him. The pagan, he does know God's law, even if it is just intuitive or natural. Third of what we saw. Third, we saw that Jesus and the apostles affirmed the Ten Commandments as the moral foundation of the new covenant. In the time of the prophets, Jeremiah evoked the imagery of writing of the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone to communicate gospel realities. For those who have been born above, for those who have been regenerated, the Christian has a renewed relation to God's moral law. No longer are we bent towards suppression, rejection, and neglect of God's moral law. As Christians, we now accept, obey, and delight in God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. Furthermore, just as Christ came to fulfill the law for us, we also saw that he had this pattern given to us for our sanctification. He did not come to fulfill the law to abolish it, but he fulfilled the law to embody the law in his person, in his work, for our salvation and for our example. If God is infinitely holy and perfect in his morality, he is the perfect lawgiver. But we are not perfect law keepers. Because of our sin, we are morally and righteously deficient. We owe God what we cannot give in and of ourselves. We cannot give him that perfect law keeping and holiness. But Christ, in his perfect and loving obedience to the Father, he 
kept the law, primarily the Ten Commandments, the moral law. He is the only truly righteous and holy man before God. And Christ lavished the benefits of his righteousness, his perfect law-keeping upon us. And where he took the penalty of sin and lawlessness that we procured for ourselves. By faith in Christ and his perfect worth, we stand justified before our God. But that is not all that Christ provides. Christ has not only shown us freedom from the penalty of sin, but he also shows us the freedom from the power of sin. In our continuing sanctification, Christ, through the Spirit, molds us more and more in the image of himself. And that image is the perfect law keeper. The one who delights in God's moral law. Through sanctification, we become more like Christ in delighting and savoring after God's word and his moral commandments. Brothers, we need to note this. Christ is not a halfway savior. He doesn't stop short of our sin problem. Not only does he deal with the fruit of our sin, the penalty of death, He also gets at the root of the sin through his sanctifying grace. So so one of the blessings of the new covenants that Jeremiah prophesied and that Jesus and the apostles affirmed over and over again is Christ's example for us and our conformity, our renewed relation to God's moral law. Thus, the Ten Commandments are still binding upon us as believers It's part of our Christian obedience. It's part of our Christian delight to follow after God, to be more like our Christ. So these three points are all very important in how we proceed. To summarize, we affirm that God's moral law is the same in essence as the Ten Commandments and distinct from the other commandments given in the Old Testament. So whenever I say moral law, I need you all to hear Ten Commandments and vice versa. Two, we affirm that the moral law was in effect before and after the Old Covenant was established. And three, we affirm that the moral law is still the rule of obedience for us as Christians, as our gospel obedience, as our love to show Christ in our sanctification. Brothers, if you have any questions about these three points, please come and ask me. Not only would I love to talk to you about these things, It is truly my delight to see our understanding of the scriptures become more and more uniform and concrete together. And in that, there's great reward. So then, with these three points refreshed in our mind, let's turn to the Sabbath principle. I would imagine that most of us are familiar with some of these concepts or with teachings that are in line with these general principles. However, in the church at large, and the church universal, especially the evangelical church, whenever we get to the fourth commandment, something strange happens. All the stringent exegesis and all the theological logic that undergirds what we have seen is tossed out the window. Now, brothers, I am not uh, talking about those who are antinomians or those who are outside the historic Christian belief and practice. I'm not talking about those who are clearly out of line with God's word. I am talking about historically-minded evangelicals and even Reformed confessional believers. These are the ones who seem to sidestep the fourth commandment. Personally, I believe that this issue stems largely from ignorance and prior practices. 
Let me give you an example. Uh, the other day I was reading a scholarly journal, you know, as you do. Um, yes, that's my life now. It's not fun. Please pray for me. Uh, in this journal, it was talking about uh, political issues and conscience issues. Even more fun. They were making the point that how some political actions or beliefs are a matter of individual conscience and not binding upon the entire church. That, that was just the premise. Um, is, uh, basically, the premise was something like this, is that political issues are similar to the question of alcoholic beverages in churches, or in church, not in churches. That would be fun. Um, for some, their conscience, their conscience allows for that beverage, but for some Christians, it does not. It's a disputable matter. That's the words that they use, is that that's a disputable matter of the conscience when it comes to Christians. But these authors, good men, godly men, men that I love to listen to, these authors of this journal also use the Sabbath issue as an example of a disputable matter of our Christian freedom. I quote them. This is straight from them. Disputable matters include issues of how uh, you interpret the sons of God in Genesis 6. You know, that, that question of sons of God, is it... Uh, angels, or is it just really strong people? Who knows? And then they go on, or how Christians should view the Sabbath. You see, these Reformed confessional authors believe that the Sabbath issue is a matter of Christian conscience, is that we individually get to decide how we should apply it to our lives. But it's not a clear moral issue. For them, the issue of how we apply the Sabbath commandment is similar to the alcohol issue. Not similar to murder. Brothers and sisters, I tell you right now, this is wrong. And unfortunately, this is a common belief and practice. The fourth commandment is not a conscious issue. It is a morality issue, just like idolatry, murder, and adultery are moral issues. Just as sanctity of worship, marriage, and life are all preserved in the commandments of the moral law and preserved there at creation for us, so too is the sanctity of work and rest preserved in the fourth commandment. So then the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, is just as binding upon us today as it was for Israel and even for Adam. Since the fourth commandment is part of the moral law, it also is part of the law inscribed upon our hearts as image bearers at creation. Like the other commandments that were written upon the stone by God's finger at Sinai, the fourth commandment is also rewritten upon our hearts as those regenerated by God as a blessing of the new covenant. Brothers, we do not have nine commandments. We have Ten. So we should affirm and practice all ten commandments, all ten of God's moral law. So let's move on to our second major point, the issues concerning the Sabbath command. So second major point, issues concerning the Sabbath command. I'm not trying to answer your questions. I see some faces out there right now like, what's, what's going on here, pastors? Why is he up here saying this? It seems a little bit weird. We'll get to it. Don't worry. Trust me. For some of you hearing this, you may have some genuine questions like this. 
well, the Sabbath was on Saturday, so should we become Seventh-day Baptists? No, we shouldn't. Also, wasn't the Sabbath an Old Testament thing? I thought Jesus freed us from all that. Well, I'm glad you asked, brothers. There are more difficulties with this command than the others. And that is why we are spending more time on this commandment. And I'm being a little bit more picky here. Next week, we will spend more time on the reason for the change of the day to Sunday and the New Testament teaching on it. And we'll look at the other issues that pertain to it. But for this week, I want us to have a really firm grasp on the theology of the Sabbath. So if I don't answer all your questions this week, be sure to pay attention in the following weeks. Or just come ask me a question, or your pastors. So with that said, we can begin to answer some objections that are typically raised at this point. We will look at the question of the importance of the seventh day and the abrogation of the Old Testament Sabbath. To help us guide us in this discussion, I'm actually going to use our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. This is what, we, uh, what all deacons and elders have to subscribe to um, in order to be an elder or deacon, and we also affirm this as a church. So if you wish, you can read it online with me, but I'm not tempting you to, uh, uh, but that's not necess- necessary. In chapter 22 of the Confession of Faith, it states this, As it is the law of nature, that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, God hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. That's some good old English, right? In theological talk, our confession upholds the one in seven principle, the one in seven principle of Christian Sabbatarianism, sometimes called Puritan Sabbatarianism. Our confession holds two proofs for why the fourth commandment is binding upon all peoples at all times. First is the law of nature. The law of nature is, again, this idea of that Adam and all his descendants have, moral, have the moral law ingrained upon their minds and wills because they are created in the image of God. Law of nature also refers to the providential patterns of life in which man lives. It is no coincidence that all people at every time have followed the followed the seven-day work week, or the seven-day week. It is ingrained in who we are as image bearers. The testimony of the seventh day is a testimony of God's providence and creatorship. Have you ever thought about that before? That's amazing. Is that we literally have a sign saying, guys, where do we get the seven days from? This, this is not a natural thing. Not according to lunar calendars and things like that. It is purely arbitrary. Yet it was instituted at creation, and all peoples at all times do follow it. Something to give you some thoughts on. Say that at a cocktail party. Um, It is ingrained, this principle of the seventh day is ingrained in who we are as image bearers. And both the old and, uh, I'm sorry, the other proof for Christian Sabbatarianism is also the word of God. In both the Old and New Testaments, there is a day that is honored and esteemed as the day in which God appointed for his worship. For the Old Testament, it was the Sabbath, and for us, it's the Lord's Day. So we're going to go on. Furthermore, in the Confession, it provides a helpful definition of the Sabbath command. 
It defines the fourth commandment as a positive, moral, and perpetual command. By moral and perpetual, we mean that it is intrinsically part of God's creation, of God's moral law, and thus not subject to abrogation. With Adam and the patriarchs at the beginning of creation, with Israel under the Old Covenant, with uh, this church in the New Covenant, and even with all of God's saints in the new heavens and the new earth, we are all commanded to the same moral law, even the fourth commandment. It's, that's why it's called the rest, is that we, we will be in eternal Sabbath then. We will be constantly keeping this commandment. For a clear example of the moral and perpetual nature of the Sabbath, turn, turn, turn to your Bibles in Exodus 16. Now we're getting to the good part. I had to get all through all that theological talk to get to the Bible. All right. This is going to be like Bible drill just a little bit, but y'all should be okay with that. We like, we like the Bible here. Similar to Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 20, they had the law of adultery. That was the issue for them. The law of adultery before the law came. Israel had the fourth commandment too. In Exodus 16, verse 22, we see the Lord commanded the people to keep Sabbath while they were in the wilderness. So Exodus 16, verse 22. And again, this is before the law was given at Exodus 20. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two ummers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest a holy Sabbath uh, to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to keep till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning. As Moses commanded them, it did not, uh, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. We must remember in this passage that though the people had been saved from Egypt at this point, they had not yet come into covenant with Yahweh. It is only at chapter 20 when they have received the law, and it is only at chapter 24 when they confirm their covenant with Yahweh. Why then does God hold them accountable to this practice before the law covenant is given it? It's because the Sabbath principle has always been in effect. Because it is both morally and perpetually binding through all ages. Another example is found in Genesis 4.3. If you would, please turn there with me. This is becoming Sunday school. It's how I do it. I'm sorry. Can't help it. Genesis 4.3. Cain and Abel bring their food offerings before God at a specific time. In the ESV and multiple other translations, it's translated something at the very beginning of 4.3, in the course of time, but is literally translated at the end of days. The end of days. The phrase end of days is interesting. It only appears 12 times in the entire Hebrew Bible in this form. And the other times are, are unique to their context. Why did Cain and Abel worship at this point in time? 
end of days could be a signifier of the seventh day, which was the end of the days of the week, the seventh day, the end of the week. End of days could be a signifier of that. Now, it's not abundantly clear from the text, but it is suggestive that both Cain and Abel learned from their parents. Just as they sacrificed on that day, they sacrificed the, the, uh, Abel appropriately and Cain not so. Uh, Cain offered up the lamb just as Adam and Eve learned it from God. So they also came at the appropriate time. They came at the seventh day. Just as Adam and Eve's pattern God's work, Cain and Abel and eventually Israel were to do the same thing, even before the official fourth commandment was officially established. It is moral and perpetual. It is part of who we are as image bearers. So with all this in mind, I hope we are starting to see that God's fourth commandment has been, has been around since the creation of man. Sinai was not unique. The Sabbath came from God's pattern of work and rest and was to be the pattern of his image bearers. I hope that you're seeing that this command is more than just a rule for a specific time or, or for a specific people. It is moral and perpetual for all peoples at all times. But no doubt other questions are popping into your head. You might be like me when I first heard this teaching. I thought it was weird. Amen? Y'all know what I'm talking about. You might be like me when I first heard of this commandment. You might be asking, but the Sabbath was on the Sabbath. Doesn't the New Testament teach that the laws are abrogated and Christian worship uh, was, uh, of God was on the first day of the week? Then, you know, that was my bread and butter. That's what I knew. Yes, it does. The New Testament does teach that the Sabbath laws are abrogated. But we need to qualify that. In Exodus 31, God calls the seventh day a sign of the Old Covenant. It's a sign of the Old Covenant. But as we'll see next week, the Lord's Day, today, it acts as a sign of the, uh, of the New Covenant. It is a sign of God's redeeming grace and the hope for our future. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will no longer need the Lord's Day either. That will be abrogated if, you, if we could use that term. We will look at the New Testament passages that concern the Sabbath week next week. But I believe we would be best served if we look at the confession's last term, its last descriptor of the fourth commandment, is a positive commandment. By positive commandment, our confession does not mean that the fourth commandment is happy or has good vibes. That's not what it's teaching. In the confession, a positive commandment means additional laws or clauses added to the moral law. For example, in the fifth commandment, when we went over it, we briefly noted that Paul in Ephesians 6 cites Exodus 20, verse 12, the fifth commandment as we have it, to underscore the authority in the home. Exodus 20, verse 12 states this, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. But in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, please turn there with me. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Paul writes this. Children, he's talking to children. He's commanding them a particular commandment. Obey your, pam- uh, your parents in the Lord, for it is right. And he quotes the fifth commandment. 
honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. But notice what he does with a promise. It's not the same as Exodus 20, verse 12. He says that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. There's a difference. Do you see the slight difference in wording? One of them had the land that you're going into and that you may live in the land that he's talking to Ephesians now. For Paul, the moral law did not change. Honor of father and mother was moral and perpetually binding. It was the moral core. But Paul does slightly slightly change the promise of the commandment. Instead of focusing upon the land of Israel, like Exodus 20 verse 12, Paul had in view the Ephesians' home territory. Paul was not expecting the Ephesians to honor their parents so that they could have a good vacation spot in Israel. Right? Paul was not expecting them to keep this commandment with the promise of having land in Israel. Paul affirmed the moral core of the fifth commandment, but he also had the authority to change the positive or the additional, the positive or the additional promise for the context of the new covenant community. The Sabbath principle is the exact same. There is a moral core, one in six, but there are positive or additional aspects of the command that can change. Remember that our confession affirms the one in seven principle, The seventh day, in and of itself, this is important, the seventh day, in and of itself, was not moral. Neither is the first day, Sunday. Not in and of itself. They are positive or additional according to God's revelation at a particular time. Saturday was moral in the Old Testament because it was the prescribed day of worship up until the day of Christ's resurrection. Likewise, the first day of the week is considered positive because it is the prescribed day of worship until Christ returns. For the historic confessional view, the specific day of worship and rest is considered positive. But the moral core is the pattern of work and rest for worship. So Sunday and Saturday, they're just additions. But the core is still there. The moral core is eternal and forever binding, but the specific day is a matter of God's decree and revelation at a particular time. Now, that's a lot that I just gave y'all. Let's break that down. It might be a bit hard to conceptualize, and it is for me too, but maybe how I think of it might help you. Throughout my childhood, my mother was always very particular about the decorations around the home, especially during major holidays like Christmas. As a typical Southern woman, she loved big ornaments and wreaths, these ornate figurines, and even our dining wear would become more festive, especially if we had company over. Men, you know what I'm talking about. Growing up, my least favorite decorations around the house were during the Christmas season. It's not because my mom had bad taste or anything like that, but she had these enormous, clunky garlands garlands that she would hang out on the front door. And these garlands would blow in the wind and bang against the front door. To my dismay, my room was the closest to the front door, and these garlands would blow in the wind for a month and a half. And for a month and a half out of the year, 
all I would hear in the pitch of night was bang, bang, bang. Not fun. Suffice to say, I became a regular Ebenezer Scrooge. But when spring came, when spring came, my mom opted for a simpler Easter decoration for the front door. And my life was restored to me. She's going to be furious when she <laughs> hears this sermon. Brothers, listen here to this. My mom had two decorations that changed throughout the year. Either the garland or the simpler Easter decoration. These decorations were different throughout the year. But neither of them, neither of these decorations fundamentally changed what the door was. The door did not change. Only the additions. The distinction between the decorations is much like the fourth commandment. The distinction between Sunday and Saturday does not fundamentally change the commandment. It looks different, but at its core, it still preserves the sanctity of work and rest for worship. And just as my mom had the authority to change the decorations on the front door, you better believe she used that authority. Our God has the authority to change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. It still does not change the front door. So with that said, we come now to the actual content of the fourth commandment. Our third point. Before we look at the actual commandment, take a look at Exodus 20 verse 11. If you'll turn there with me. Exodus 20 verse 11. This provides the reason for why the commandment is given. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. To repeat again, the fourth commandment is based in the pattern and activity of God. It's not as though God had to rest from the creation of labor, but is for but it was his purpose to create the entire cosmos in the span of six days and then to institute an additional day of rest. Our God did this so that we, as his image bearers, would follow the same pattern as our creator. The Sabbath was not made for man. Uh, the Sabbath was not, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man, as Mark 2 teaches In his following an amazing work of creation, our God institutes and sanctifies the one in six pattern of worship and rest. Just as he established the sanctity of marriage and life and truth and justice and property rights with the Eighth Commandment uh, and with all the other commandments, so too does he sanctify our patterns of work and rest. This is, is something that we have to reiterate again and again throughout our study. The Sabbath principle or the fourth commandment is a creation ordinance. It was made by God so that we might reflect him. And by reflecting this pattern of work and rest, we worship him. As he rested on this day and he sanctified it, so too when we rest on this day, cease from our labors, we sanctify it as well. Next week we'll see other reasons for keeping the Sabbath. 
But I think with what we've seen already this morning, the pattern of God's work and rest should give us plenty to think about. So then the core of the commandment is this. This is the commandment proper. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or even the sojourner who is within your gates. In the fourth commandment, six days of labor of work was mandated, and that was followed by a day set apart for worship. The word Sabbath is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's theologically charged, but most likely its basic definition is cessation from work. Just simply, it's cessation from work. I think that when most Christians hear Sabbath, they think of just taking the day off. But that is not all that the Sabbath commandment entailed. It actually commanded six full days of work, then a full day of cessation from that work. Many of us have those nine-to-five jobs um, with a Saturday off, right? Or jobs that have us work some days off and then some days off. It's easy for us to see our free time as our time. All our responsibilities that aren't our main job can be gotten to whenever we please. Certainly, there will be leisure time throughout your week, but we have other responsibilities as well. We have bills to pay, assignments to finish, lawn lawn care to complete. Man, Pilahatchee was hard. Matt, thank you. And I'm sure I could go on. It's so easy for us at the end of our week to put off these responsibilities so that we can have a little me time at the beginning. Friends, I love my leisure time. My wife can attest to that. I love being able to relax with Mary at the end of the workday once we put Abby down. I love having a lazy Saturday with my family, but that should not be the norm. In the fourth commandment, we are called to regular patterns of work, to full work weeks from Monday to Saturday. I know that some of you have unique work schedules. Uh, Know that I don't have you in mind at this point. Uh, we'll look at later works. Uh, look at it later, but works of mercy and necessity on the Sabbath. But we often confuse the responsibilities of our regular work week with essential or necessary work, and this is a problem area for us. For example, uh, before I came to understand this commandment, my family and I would love to go get some business done on Sundays. We lived in the suburbs of Ridgeland, actually, here in Mississippi, but the church I grew up in was in Fondren, the Jackson area. And you had everything that you needed when it was in that nice little city center. Our thought was, you know, since it's, we're already out, let's go get some groceries while we're out, take care of laundry, uh, let's finish our homework at the uh, coffee shop down the street before youth group, things like that. Brothers, socializing with friends planning our schedules, and finishing up our homework is a good thing. It is a good thing. But God has given us six full days to plan accordingly so that his day of rest would not be disturbed by needless activity. Brothers, see this as well. Exodus 20, verse 9. See that word, all. All. 
we are commanded to complete all our work before the Sabbath. That includes not only our employments or our jobs, but any aspect of our lives that could hinder us from the worship of God. Brothers, you may not have a job that employs you on Sunday or your work is a necessity, and you think that you're in line with this commandment. But do you plan all your family gatherings or social gatherings on Sundays? Do Sundays become just an, another extended Saturday and not the Lord's Day? Brothers, I'm not against gathering with loved ones on the Lord's Day, but what is its purpose? Is it for edification and ministry, or is it for niceties and chit-chat? For others, do you try to finish up a business project or homework because it's due on Monday? What prevents you from getting it done? Either get it done Saturday or get up at four in the morning. I had to learn that the hard way. Uh, uh, when we were going through commandments, and I first learned this, the, the historic practice of Sabbath keeping, I was doing homework in college, and my pastor rebuked me, and rightfully so, and he told me to get up at four in the morning on Monday and finish it. That was hard, because I'm not a four in the morning kind of person. But it was one of the best things that my pastor ever told me. And I'm eternally grateful for that and his faithfulness to me in that regard. You might be thinking, all right, Hal, get a little nitpicky here. But this is what the commandment teaches, brothers. Verse 9, see in verse 9, is acting as a definition of what keeping the Sabbath holy meant. To sanctify the Sabbath, to keep it holy, that's what sanctify means, just to keep it holy is not a nebulous notion of piety that we conjure up about Sundays. God gives us the definition of what keeping the Sabbath holy meant. And that definition is this. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath, a cessation to the Lord your God. God has called us to work six hearty days with joy and to rest for the purpose of his worship and praise. And it is only in ceasing from our needless labors and resting for God's worship that we sanctify the Sabbath. It is only in that pattern. No halfway mark. Pastor Wynn has said this far too often. And I think far too often we do not heed him. Pastor Wynn says this all the time. God has not given us an hour, but a day for his worship. Just as we are employed all day in the worship of God and the edifications of the saints, we are also to cease from our needless labors. All day we are to be employed in the worship of God, whether in home, whether in corporate worship, whether in private prayer. But we are all day called to cease from our labors for His worship. Now, this commandment might seem already a little bit troubling for some, but there may be things that you haven't connected yet to your Christian life or to your Christian obedience. And I wish that we could end there and we could reflect there, but brothers, we still have another issue in this church that demands us to look at it face on. Not only are we to ensure that we are finished with all our work and responsibilities before the Lord's day, not only are we called to finish our works and cease from those works, we are also to ensure that others do the same. 
Everyone look in your Bibles to Exodus 20, verse 10. B, 10B, the next half. 10B states this. It clarifies who is responsible in keeping this commandment. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. This commandment was originally addressed to heads of households. The head of the house was to ensure that the immediate family members, like son and daughter, employees, the male and female slaves, and even livestock, were all commanded to cease from labor for rest and worship. And the last category of person should shock us. The sojourner who is within your gates. Brothers, even the pagan idolater were to cease from work and rest on this day. The Israelites had the responsibility to ensure that they did not needlessly employ other image bearers from God's rest and worship. Brothers, we have that same responsibility. I want you to know where I'm going with this. Many of you have gone out to eat or go to the grocery store to pick up food after worship. In fact, some of you have even gone to get food right before our fellowship meal. I appreciate your desire to provide food and participate in uh, fellowship meals. And I know that is a good and gracious place that you're coming from. But that is not a practice that we should be coming or should be doing. You should not be going to the grocery store or the outlet mall or any other kind of shopping. It is breaking the fourth commandment. But the big problem area for us in this church is our members going out to Sunday lunch. Trust me. I grew up on Sunday lunch. I loved Sunday lunch, as you can tell. I understand the appeal. I do, brothers. I loved going with friends or family to our favorite restaurant. It was a staple part of my Sunday experience growing up. But like much of my youth, it was not based in the Word of God. I did not realize what I was doing whenever I went into the grocery store or restaurant or movie theater. Brothers, I was employing others for my service. Every meal eaten, every ticket purchased, every item that I bought on Sunday involved multiple people serving me. Brothers, I was breaking the fourth commandment by employing others on the Lord's day. And every time that we do the same now, we sin. We sin. It's not a quick bite. It's not a quick run-in. It's sin. The fourth commandment involves not only you ceasing from labor, but also encouraging others to cease their labor as well. And you do that by not employing others on his day of worship. Brothers, this little story from my own past might help you understand what I'm suggesting here. My very first job that I had growing up was, a was working at McAllister's Deli. I was a cashier. And we were right across from a prominent Presbyterian church. This church was and still is considered confessionally reformed. They believed on paper what I have been trying to explain about the fourth commandment. They believed the historic Christian doctrine 
But that did not stop the majority of that church to flood McAllister's Deli on Sunday. Being the young whippersnapper I was, I, of course, had to work the busiest day of the week, Sunday. Now, even though I was lost at that time, I still enjoyed church. Maybe it was just the pattern I grew up with, or maybe it was that I missed my friends, but I hated missing Sunday church. I, did, I wanted to be at church. As a pagan, I wanted to be at, at church. So I asked my boss if I could take a shift at a different time. I even bargained with them. I would give them all my Saturdays if they would just give me Sunday. My boss declined my author, and he was apologetic and all that. And he said these words that still ring in my ears and sadden me to this day. He just joked. He was apologetic, and he just kind of joked off our conversation. And he said this, who is going to feed all them Christians? These words still ring in my ears today. These brothers and sisters who came into that McAllister's deli did not come in with malice in their heart or wicked intentions, but they came in with ignorance of what they believed as reformed, Bible-believing Christians. And it was that ignorance and neglect of God's word and commandment that hoisted the burden of missing worship upon my shoulders and my fellow employees Brothers, some of you may be scratching your head at this sermon. It may just seem just so odd not to run to the store or grab a quick bite on the way home. But think to all those faces, the faces of the cashiers, the servers, the waiters, the managers, the clerk attendants that have served you on Sundays. Every single one had to miss the local gathering of the saints for you. It's probable that they wouldn't go to church either way if they were free, right? But that's on them, not you. It is your responsibility, as we have seen from this commandment, to abstain from employing others. Brothers, if you encourage the work and labor of another on this day, another image bearer who has this law, you are sinning against God. Is Wendy, Wendy's or Kroger worth that? Brothers, to close this message, I want you to realize that we have covered a lot of ground today. And we haven't even scratched the surface yet. Not only do we see more difficult theology and exegesis in this topic, we also have some difficult application from this commandment. And there is still more to do. Brothers, if you feel the sting of the sin in your conscience, you are not alone. Our culture, even our sub-Christian culture, is counterintuitive to this commandment. But don't let our culture stop you from repenting and joyfully obeying where it is necessary. Brothers, let us repent from our sins and joyfully partake in this day of worship and rest. And as we delight ourselves in God's Sabbath day, in the Lord's day, may others see this delight as a call to worship and rest as well. Know that your pastors and I don't want to heap unnecessary burdens upon your conscience. We simply want God's people to love God's law as it's commanded in Scripture. And it is the act, it is in that act of obedience and Sabbath keeping that we will call the Sabbath our delight.
Hear the words from Valley of Vision that Pastor Thomas shared with me. And may you be blessed in cherishing them as well. O maker and upholder of all things, day and night are thine. They are also mine from thee. The night to rid me of the cares of the day, to refresh my weary body, to renew my natural strength. The day to summon me to new activities, to give me opportunity to glorify thee, to serve my generation, to acquire knowledge, knowledge, holiness, and eternal life. He gave us six days for that. But one day above all is made especially for thy honor and my improvement. The Sabbath reminds me of thy rest from creation, of the resurrection of my Savior, and of entering into repose, entering into that rest. Thy house is mine, but I am unworthy to meet thee there. I am unfit for spiritual service. When I enter it, I come before thee as a sinner, condemned by conscience and thy word. For I am still in the body and in the wilderness, ignorant, weak, and in danger, and in need of thine aid. But encouraged by thy all-sufficient grace, let me go to thy house with a lively hope of meeting thee, knowing that thou will come to me and give me peace. My soul is drawn out to thee in longing desires for thy presence in thy sanctuary at the table where all are entertained on a feast of good things. This is where the Sabbath comes in. Let me before the broken elements, emblems of thy dying love, cry to thee with broken heart for grace and forgiveness. I long that blissful communion of thy people, us here now on his day. That blissful communion of thy people and in that eternal house in the perfect kingdom. These are they that follow the Lamb. May I be of their company. Amen and amen, brothers. Let us pray. Father, you are good to us in that you have not left us to ourselves to figure out what you want, but you have given us your word that we might know in clarity and truth what it is that you require of not only your image bearers, but those who are renewed in Christ. Lord, we thank you for Christ Jesus, for he was the perfect Sabbath keeper. And Lord, now, because of his perfect righteousness and his work for us in obedience to your perfect will, Lord, he sits now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us now. Lord, we recognize that today we're more difficult and strange to what we typically hear. But Lord, help us all not to become hardened to these truths, but Lord, to see them as your truth, to see them as inscripturated doctrine, and that we might turn from our sins, and that we would lean wholly upon Christ and his perfect righteousness for us, but also that we would turn and follow his example of being the perfect Sabbath keeper. Lord, we ask this in your son's holy perfect and amazingly restful name. Amen.